Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Dan Madigan, Daniel Connolly, and Megan Gower. To open up, we got the basketball schedules out for both the men's and women's team last week. And now we know the full breakdown of uh, what the AAC slate looks like, as well as what uh, the XL and Gample breakdown will be, which I think uh, we want to talk about a little bit right now. So starting with the women's team, um, we'll start with Megan. What were your uh, just quick or immediate reactions to the women's basketball schedule? Uh, so I think the women's basketball schedule, especially compared to the men's, is really exciting. Um, there's a lot of big non-conference games on there, as there always is, but a lot of them are home this year. So it'll be exciting to get to actually watch those in person. Um, we've got Notre Dame, Baylor, Oregon, and, um, and then you have at home and then um, South Carolina on the road. I also think the timing of that South Carolina game is super interesting because their team is probably going to be better later on in the season. Um, they've got a really strong freshman class coming in, so it's probably going to take them a little bit to get adjusted and acclimated. But by the time that you come play them, I think that's going to be a really interesting game this year. Um, and of course, we've got the Oregon game later in February too, which is a good test of heading into kind of the end of the season of where you kind of will stand with Oregon probably being the favorite to win the national championship this year. Yeah, I mean, we always knew the non-conference schedule was going to be packed. And um, I think, obviously, great to see that it's spread out as, as late into the season as possible. Um, of course, we're not expecting any, any significant competition from uh, the AAC slate. But, uh, Connolly, any other uh, thoughts from the schedule release? I think it's really good that they've kind of loaded up the January and February non-conference games because normally it's like two games, maybe three, but this year they have four. And uh, like Megan said, it just adds some extra intrigue, gives them more of a challenge as the season goes on because we know how bad those AAC games can be. And the only downside of it is that you start conference play really, really, really early against Temple in the third game of the season on November 17th. But I mean, the non-conference schedule is good enough that it doesn't really – I'd rather have the conference schedule kind of split up and spread out so it's not just 50-point win after 40-point win after 60-point win after 90-point win. So I really like the balance that it has along with having those high-end opponents in there. Yeah, a couple of interesting uh, games to highlight on that early schedule. They'll be at Vanderbilt. That's going to be Crystal Dangerfield's uh, homecoming game. That's the second regular season game of the season. Right after that, they'll be at Temple for that conference opener, November 17th. That's pretty wild. And then November 19th, Gino against his old team, uh, Virginia, coming to the XL Center. So uh, that's all going to go down before – uh, that that huge matchup with Notre Dame at Gamble December 8th. Emma, is it crazy to say that I might actually be more excited for the Oregon game than I am for the Notre Dame game? I think that's a big matchup, Dan. I, I think that Oregon game is one of the best games that UConn has had uh, for a home game in years. Um, and that that's going up against a pretty stacked schedule that they've had for the past few years, right? But Oregon's, you know, a legitimate national championship contender this year. 
great players with Ionescu and Ruthie Hebert. So should be really interesting to see how that game pans out. Could be, you know, a Final Four National Championship game preview. Since Oregon's become this national power, UConn's never played them. The last, the only time they've played them is, um, since they've gotten kind of close to this level was in the Elite Eight back in 2017. And Oregon and Ionescu were absolutely nowhere close to where they are now, and UConn beat them pretty easily. So these two teams have never played, and for as much hype and press and everything that Ionescu and Oregon have gotten, they still haven't even faced UConn. So that that's why I'm excited for it. And not to take away from Notre Dame, but like we see Notre Dame twice a year that kind of takes the – I don't want to say takes the excitement out, but – you know it's coming every year, whereas Oregon's kind of a new thing. Right, of course. Always good to have that, that new flavor, and um, especially to have that game at Gamble. That's, that's awesome. So, yeah, Megan, you mentioned Oregon. Who would you say is the second toughest team on, on the schedule? I would definitely say Baylor. Um, I think even though they lost Kalani Brown, they still have Lauren Cox and a really strong core of underclassmen that are trying to step up this year. Um, so I would say I'm definitely more excited for that game probably than the Notre Dame one too. I think Notre Dame's kind of going to be in a rebuilding year. This year they lost five starters. Um, they had a couple other players transfer. So it's going to be, I'm sure they're going to get off to a slower start than we're used to seeing. Um, so that December game might not be as big of a matchup as it usually is. Well, yeah, lo- loaded schedule. And uh, we'll also be seeing Tennessee this year. Uh, that'll be, that'll be at Excel. So yeah, gr- I mean, great, great overall schedule for them. Um, I think the men's schedule, uh, people were a little bit, uh, upset with the men's schedule. I think understandably so first off, um, the, the XL slate does not look, uh, very enticing, but I also think at the same time, uh, nice that they got. Florida at Gamble, that's that's really great. I like the, of course, the the MSG games. Conference play, though, how you know how do we feel about how that schedule played out? I think the non-conference schedule is is definitely lacking. I mean, I, I'm trying to go through, and you, the schedule overall is pretty weak, but that's just you know due to playing in the American, right? So obviously, next year with UConn going to the Big East, it should be a lot stronger, top to bottom, but. Uh, outside of that Florida game, I was trying to find another um, non-conference game that's really exciting, uh, probably Buffalo, which is right after, um, and, and maybe Indiana, but that's at MSG. So like you said, tough slate for for home season ticket holders. Uh, I was trying to find the best XL Center game. I think it's probably Memphis off the top of my head, just looking through the schedule here, but um, – it's pretty weak overall. I know Memphis is supposed to be pretty solid this year with James Wiseman, one of the top recruits in the country, but uh, usually there's at least one marquee non-conference opponent, whether it's like a Georgetown uh, or, or something along those lines that comes to XL just to kind of draw those big crowds that UConn fans used to see during the, you know, the old Big East days. So it's really interesting. I think, you know, I'm pretty surprised that the schedule is this week. I mean, there's a stretch where it's in, December where it's St. Peter's, New Hampshire, and NJIT before they play Cincinnati. Uh, that might be one of the worst three-game stretches I think I've ever seen on a UConn schedule. So uh, they're winnable games, but definitely not super exciting. Yeah, and I feel like it kind of lacks a middle class. Like, there's 
decent higher end games like Florida's a solid game. Iona's a decent mid major. You could play Xavier in the Charleston Classic. You've got those higher up teams, but then it's basically like bottom of the barrel. Other than that, like Madigan said, those three games. And I don't know. I'm also kind of concerned that there's not really any road games. Like I understand it's kind of a young team and you want to get them comfortable. And I think having some of those bad teams helps because even if you're beating up on bad teams, it helps with the confidence and you need that with a young team. But at the same time, the first experience, a lot of these guys are going to get going to a true road environment is at Cincinnati. That's not great. That's a tough place to play. UConn obviously hasn't done well there in a long, long time. So I think it would have been nice to maybe mix in a road game against like some mid tier school, like a, I don't know, like a Dayton, but like that, that type of level just to kind of get those guys experience. So they're not so wide eyed when they get to Cincinnati. Megan, you have anything to add on the basketball schedule? Yeah, I would just echo what Dan said about the road games. I think that's definitely less than ideal to have your first road game of the year be at Cincinnati and then they're at USF right after that. And then they've got another tough one on the road at Villanova with no like earlier season prep for that. So that's definitely um, not the maybe the best thing we'd like to see. I do think that Villanova game will be fun. I feel like a lot of UConn fans will travel for that though, so it might not be as cool of a road environment as some of the other ones, but yeah, I mean, I think the best environments are going to be um, uh, outside of Connecticut, unfortunately, if we talk about what we're looking forward to this season, even right, even that game at Philly, imagine Husky fans will, will really show up for that. And then, of course, love to go to MSG, Indiana. Uh, that's good. And then, I don't know, I could see I could see a decent contingent even making it over to Charleston for that. Um, I'm, I'm certainly thinking about it. So unfortunate, but hey, last year in the AAC, starting next year, we'll get those sweet, sweet Georgetown, Villanova, St. John's, Providence every year, which is obviously a massive upgrade from uh, these fellas. Elsewhere in the world of Husky sports, we did want to uh, give the WNBA a shout out. The Connecticut Sun made the WNBA finals. That's pretty sweet. Um, and there is a former Husky on that team. So Megan, how is, how's that Husky been doing for the, uh, Eastern Conference champion Sun? Been doing well. She hasn't gotten a ton of time. The Sun tend to stick with their five starters. So, um, with most of their playoff run, we haven't seen too much of their bench. So we haven't seen a lot of Morgan Tuck. Um, but hopefully we'll get to see some of her in the finals of the bench. I think that's going to be one of the key things for the Sun, um, going into the finals is having someone on the bench that can step up and hopefully Morgan Tuck can be that player. She's definitely been that player at times throughout the season, but they tend to have a kind of big drop off when they have to put someone in from their bench. So it's going to be important if they want to beat the Mystics to have some good bench production heading into the finals on Sunday. I know there uh, obviously were a lot of Huskies missing in action this season, but any other highlights from the playoffs in terms of Huskies in the WNBA? Well, I think we got to mention definitely Nafisa Collier, who was named Rookie of the Year. I think it's towards the start of the playoffs, um, just really topping off a terrific rookie season. And then the Middle Little Leagues played just one playoff game. They lost in the first round 
but she had a phenomenal game. You put her to a double-double. I believe it was like only the second double-double by a rookie in a playoff appearance um, in the last like 10 years or so. So just a continuation of a great season from her. Yeah, I mean, Nafisa, it started to, you know, we, we thought most of the season she would be the, she was the front runner for, for rookie of the year. And um, she was able to uh, hold on for the honor despite some late competition. I know you wrote an article about kind of that statistical case for, for Nafisa Collier. And we know you're, you're completely unbiased and just, just uh, <laughs> looking to the statistics. So uh, for anyone who didn't catch it, um, what's kind of the main, the main themes of uh, what she did to earn that as, even as the competition for the award got, got a lot hotter? Uh, I think one of the things is just like her ability to do like a little bit of everything on the floor. I think it was draft night that Shell Reeves called her like a Swiss Army knife just because she can do some of everything on the court, and she really did that all season. Had like 400 points, 200 rebounds, 75 assists, handful of steals, blocks. Um, basically, the only the third player in WNBA history to record the like combination of stats that she stacked up in a single season. So something really impressive. Um, and then I think the other thing that stood out for me this season was her defense, uh, something that doesn't always necessarily come up on the stat sheet, but she just had a great defensive presence for the least all season long. And something I kind of stumbled upon while I was writing that article is that she actually finished second in the league overall, so not among rookies, but in all of the WNBA in defensive win shares for the season, just behind uh, Natasha Howard from the Storm, who was the Defensive Player of the Year. So that kind of just gives you an idea of like how strong of a defensive season she had. Yeah, Nafisa Collier rocking it. Great rookie season. Just dropped a great article on the Players' Tribune. Highly recommend you all read it. A lot of good uh, good bits on her time at UConn and what, what that meant for her. And, and definitely also check out Megan's article on the UConn blog. Uh, Megan, Olivia Nelson Adota, not in the WNBA yet, but uh, she's on Team USA uh, at the FIBA America Cup along with a number of former, number of other former Huskies. Um, what's the uh, what's the update on on the Husky alums from there? Yeah, I think I was able to watch the game on Sunday and was overall really impressed with what Nelson Adota was able to do with her minutes. Kind of the first glimpse we've got to see of her playing since last. Um, April, so definitely kind of a good way to get a preview of what's to come for the upcoming season. Um, but she looks a lot stronger on the glass, I think, than she did last year, which is definitely something she needed to uh, work on in the off season. Um, I think she had really productive minutes in both of the first two games for them. The first game, I think she had about six points and six rebounds and not too much time. And then in the second game, which I believe was yesterday, she had 10 points and eight rebounds in just like 14 minutes. Um, I think the other important thing to know is that a lot of her rebounds in those games so far have been offensive, um, which is a good thing that you kind of maybe without their lack of size has struggled with in the past. So it'll be good to see if she can have a stronger presence on the offensive glass for the Huskies this year. Nice. Yeah. I mean, looking forward to a good, uh, good season from her and uh, great that she's going to get that, uh, opportunity to she's getting this opportunity to develop her game uh going into a season where obviously UConn's going to be really uh really tested very frequently um we'll let you go Megan with just one one quick question on your way out 
What's one thing you're worried about with the women's basketball team, UConn women's basketball team, going into this season? I feel like the most thing I'm worried about is who's going to get that fifth starter spot. If Avina Westbrook gets the waiver, I think that's the obvious choice. But in the event that she doesn't, that fifth starter that's going to be a strong piece in the starting lineup, I think is the biggest question mark right now. All right. Well, uh I know right now we've got some uh, rough, go- rough things going on in fall sports season, but uh, don't worry, folks. Basketball is around the corner. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll take a quick break before talking some football. Thank you to our wonderful friends at Vox Media for that advertising. All right, guys, we are contractually obligated to talk about the, the football team right now, even though... Uh, certainly very disappointed in them. We had a really positive conversation that we dropped the day before that last game. The title of it was UConn football, maybe getting better. Uh, And then unfortunately, I think one of the very next things we ended up publishing was uh, UConn football crushed by Indiana 38 to three disappointing performance to say the least. Uh, especially so coming off of a bye week. I think that's uh, one piece of it that we really do need to hold the coaching staff accountable for. You've got two weeks to prepare for this game, and we're not even expecting you to to win or anything like that, but just to continue to look slightly more competent. Our expectations are not not super high, but they were not able to meet them. Indiana's quarterback looked like his namesake, Peyton Manning out there, it's Peyton Ramsey, uh, who has brothers named Montana and Drew. Did you guys catch that on the telecast, by the way? Yeah, naming your kid after Drew Bledsoe is a wild move. <laughs> it's an like, all-time stat. Like, of all the quarterbacks you can name your kid after, you're going to pick Drew Bledsoe. I mean, he was, he was decent. He so, was solid. I'm not saying he was a bad quarterback, but there's much better quarterbacks. Just, like, even, even, that, even that time frame, like, Troy Aikman is at or near his the end of his career. Dan Marino was playing football. The dude from the Colts, Johnny Unitas, like you're yeah. not going to pick any of those guys. You're going to pick Frig- Drew Bledsoe. I just- Johnny Unitas was in the '60s. Uh, yeah, Daniel. However, the po- the point is well taken. You've got Peyton Manning, one of the most prolific passers of all time. Joe Montana, uh, considered one of the best winners of all time, kind of had the mantle before. Some other system quarterback from New England took it. But, yeah, Drew, of all of them, Drew Bledsoe just doesn't really fit. As a Buffalo Bills fan, of course, I feel like if this is the second week I'm talking about being a Buffalo Bills fan, I, it's not a big part of my life anymore. But, um, you know, Drew Bledsoe had his moments and, and made multiple Pro Bowls. But, yeah, just not a great fit. Anyway, Peyton Ramsey went 23 of 27. He was an absolute force out there. and. Um, a lot of disappointment to hand around, but yeah, initial just reactions to that loss. It's been what, I think this is a Wednesday, so it's five days since the game. And I still can't believe that the offensive game plan starting the game was throwing the ball on eight of the first nine plays. And it might've even been more than that, but that's just when I had looked at the stat with a true freshman quarterback on the road in his first collegiate road game and you're going to put the entire offense on his shoulders immediately and clearly he got rattled at the beginning of the game and he never settled in 
that accuracy that he showed against Illinois was completely gone. That pocket, that lack of pocket awareness that he struggled with against Illinois was completely heightened against Indiana. He never settled in and it was tough watching him play because he looked like a true freshman quarterback out there and the coaching staff just didn't put him in the spot that they needed to for him to succeed. And I understand that maybe the run game isn't doing great or the offensive line isn't blocking great for the run game, but you at least have to put some window dressing up and make the defense think you're going to try running the ball and just take some pressure off of your quarterback by running the ball. I mean, Art Tompkins, you can give him like half an inch of space and he's going to gain 10 yards out of it. Just hand him the ball, do some screens, some draws, draw some funky things up, get a jet sweep in there. But don't just drop back pass with your freshman, true freshman quarterback, throwing it to true freshman wide receivers to start the game. I, I just can't get over that logic. Yeah, I, I just don't understand just going off of that. I think between Mensa and Art Tompkins, like they need to get probably 30 touches a game. And, and with Mensa, that's probably, you know, 15 to 20 carries. And then with Tompkins, you can split that up on the ground or in the air. Right. But yeah, I was just very surprised that they came out slinging with, with Zergiotis. Uh, I just kind of thought the plan would be to kind of control the tempo a little bit and just run the ball. Um, I do think part of this, uh, you know, us kind of jumping and having a little bit higher expectations. I do think some of this is on Illinois. Um, I think Illinois is really bad, but we might not have realized that until, after the fact, uh, they opened the season with Akron, who is probably way worse than UConn uh, and is playing UMass this week and like maybe one of the most unwatchable football games of all time. Uh, and then they played UConn and, and beat them. But then they've lost to Eastern Michigan, a decent team, but one that they should have won in Nebraska. So I'm not necessarily sure that Illinois is even that good. Uh, and so it's hard to say that they made all these strides uh, as a team when they were playing a pretty mediocre team and then playing a more respectable team like Indiana, they got picked apart. And granted, it was on the road, and, you know, it's Sergio's first start on the road, and there's a lot of things that, that go into that, but pretty disappointing to basically give up – what was it? It was 38 unanswered points, correct? UConn went up 3 nothing, and then yeah, yeah. Indiana scored 38 unanswered points. And even though the defense has, you know – was the worst in the country last year. They've been better this year. And that's something where that almost comes down on Etzel and uh, the offense, just because there just needs to be a way to try and control the game, try and continue to innovate game plan, figure out something that works to at least keep the defense off the field long enough where UConn can get something going. Yeah. And if there is kind of a silver lining, I guess it's that I think UConn second in the country with the fewest big plays allowed this season, which for how they were last year, basically exclusively giving up big plays, that's just a big step in and of itself. So it's hard to really put a ton of blame on the defense in that game when the offense was basically going out there and punting. Right. Yeah. I was about to say the same. It kind of reminded me of the the Bob Diaco final season, especially where it's just like, actually we see the defense kind of hold up a little at the beginning. You can't really tell because the offense is just going three and out uh, every single time. I thought it was not a very good offensive game plan. Again, you had two weeks to do this. Even if Indiana is much better than Illinois, um, 
they're not they're not some world beating team. Uh, one reason they they didn't go to the run game at all is they were getting dominated on the line, uh, both offensively and defensively, which was. Um, I think we we expected the at least the offensive the UConn offensive line to hold up a little bit better, but um, I think we do we can be confident that the defense is is better than these numbers you know Indiana's offensive numbers suggest. But um, it won't really matter if the offense is just not putting itself in the best position to win. You know you have a freshman quarterback. You uh, you know your offensive line is inconsistent, let's say, uh, particularly against stronger competition. So I, I think um, I would like to see a much smarter game plan. I know our, the uh, Frank Giffrey, the offensive coordinator, is uh, new to the job, but um, when we think about the Illinois game and when that started to go south, uh, part of that was the offensive game plan and Again, we were not expecting this to be a, a UConn win, but I think even for a scenario where we have very tempered expectations for this team, 38-3 obviously falls well below that. And now they've got the AAC slate starting with <laughs> starting with UCF, which is uh, not going to be an uh, enjoyable experience, I don't think. Honestly, just get it out of the way early because <laughs> – why not? This team should improve as the season goes on if they're young and those type of things. So just get the giant blowout out of the way now, and then maybe we can put up a better fight later on in the year against the Temples of the world. Well, Temple's decent too. Yeah, but they're not UCF good. Fine. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen a spread that high for like two division division one like conference opponents last time i checked it was like ucf minus 43 and a half um so they're you know expected to win by vegas has them expected to win by 44 for those who uh are very gambling friendly but um that's just like an astronomical number and i know it's at home uh it is a rivalry game so there's a little extra you know juice flowing but mm-hmm. um it, that's just a crazy number and i i don't I don't think UConn is that bad and I'm sure UCF is probably very good. They're coming off that loss to Pitt too, but uh, that's going to be really interesting to see that game. And I think it might actually be a good barometer for how much better this team is because, you know, last year's game was just a joke, but if they can stick up for themselves and and kind of make a few stops and um, you know, they're not probably going to be competitive and win this game, but if they can do some things, move the ball a little bit, I, I think that might be a good way to see that they're moving in the right direction. We'll see. I think they're going to get smacked. I think it's yeah, they are. Yeah, they're yeah. Gonna... I'm taking absolutely nothing from this game. I think they're going to get murdered like yeah. last season. Yeah, it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be like 62 to 13 or something like that. Probably not even 13. So, um, hey, I... they might put in their freshmen that get their four games by the third quarter or something. Maybe. I think you know. For me. I, I didn't want to say it on the last podcast, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't, but I was starting to feel really happy that we were, like, just talking about football, like, just talking, like, oh, man, you know, got to get the passing game going or, you know, whatever, stuff like that. Like, oh, got to gotta get better on third down defense or, you know, like, actual just football stuff. I thought we had kind of transitioned past the point of just, like, 
oh, okay, I'm going to just like gloss over and eat donuts the rest of this game, stress eat donuts because, wow, this is like brutal and it's not even a particularly amazing team. It's not like Indiana is some world-beating team or or even a middle chunk of its of its conference caliber team. So um, we shouldn't have overreacted to Illinois and we and we shouldn't, maybe overreact to this bad loss but i think we're back in that in that crater where it's like oh man are we just gonna see you know is is ucf usf at tulane who might be good houston who is you know that's the that's the next four games and are they going to and the fans also going to have morale left over because i know you meant you know there are some maybe potentially more winnable games down the road, uh, UMass, maybe East Carolina, but um, I think they're, they're going to, they're in for a rough go these next four games. Whereas, you know, maybe previously, even after game one and game two, there was some optimism that uh, they just at least wouldn't be like big blowouts. But at this point I, I would predict three of those definitely to be to be big blowouts and maybe UConn can make something happen against USF just because they're so discombobulated. Yeah, I think UCF's a sneaky upset game. Weird things always happen when you play USF and last year they only beat us by eight, which is incredible. Yeah. Like that team, that program has just been like on the verge of just like a total and utter collapse for about a year now, pretty much since that last UConn game. So maybe if UConn can start pushing them towards the edge early in the game, they might just totally fall apart and UConn could take advantage. Or maybe UConn gets lucky and there's like an early snow in October. (laughs) Things can happen. I think that's that's one of the more winnable games on the schedule just based on the history and the state of the program that USF is in right now. The series is definitely... Has been a weird one. Uh, I remember Bob Diaco shutting down the passing game one time. He just decided to completely stop. And UConn still only forget. lost that game 14-7 to because Byron Jones had a pick six at the end of the first half. Um, so many dumb games in this series. Unfortunately, uh, USF has won like five or six in a row or something. But, uh, hey, maybe last time, last ride in the AAC, and uh, Randy's got something up his sleeve for – our last true rivals, the USF Bulls. To help us break down the UConn-UCF game and also talk broader AAC football, I was joined by Jeff Sharon, the managing editor of the UCF SB Nation blog, to uh, talk a little bit more about the game and more. All right, we are thrilled to be joined here by Jeff Sharon, who is the uh, managing editor of Black and Gold Banneret, the UCF SB Nation site. Jeff, thank you so much for joining. Hey, Amon. Good talking with you again. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. So, um, not expecting this to be too, too competitive of a game this week. So, we thought we would do our, our little exchange of Q's and A's over the podcast instead of having a detailed written breakdown of how uh, UConn's hapless team matches up against various units of UCF, but why don't we go ahead and, and, and do some of our due diligence? Um, you know, just 
offensively, defensively, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this UCF team? Well, offensively, the strength this year is, is I think, the running game. Um, strange as it is to, to say, you know, because UCF has been lighting up scoreboards all over the place, but, you know, where they've really um, held their own this year, aside from last week, has been on the line of scrimmage. And actually, that's the reason why UCF lost to Pitt. And by one point, with a minute to go last week, is, you know, UCF really did get dominated on the line of scrimmage in that game for whatever reason. We're still scratching our heads trying to figure it out. Um, but this is probably the best UCF offensive line that, uh, that they've had in this three-year run. Um, and it's led to uh, some remarkable um, numbers in terms of rushing. UCF has been um, you know, really, um, I would say, blessed with the best running game that they've had yet in all of these years between Greg McRae um, you know, and Bentavious Thompson, who comes off the bench. You know, Adrian Killens obviously is a senior, which seems hard to believe by now. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, the Knights were top 10 in the NCAA in rushing coming into, um, coming into last week and, uh, and, and, so, and remain one of the top uh, total offenses uh, in the country. UCF is fourth in total offense so far. And, um, and a lot of that had to do with right there's Even after last week's pretty, pretty difficult performance, they're, they're still 15th in the country in rushing. Um, and then the big play with passing, uh, where they're ninth in the country, thanks to Dylan Gabriel, the freshman who's they're officially ripping off the red shirt off him. True freshman guy, um, he's only been in school since, um, well, so he, he, he enrolled last spring. So, um, think, uh, and for UConn fans who are wondering, think Mackenzie Milton, only left handed and a better thrower. Mm. Uh, and that's what you get with, uh, with Dylan Gabriel. They actually went to the same exact high school. Uh, Miliani oh, wow. High School in Honolulu, Hawaii. So, um, and they're pretty tight. Mackenzie Milton's kind of a de facto quarterbacks coach, if you will. He's sort of a or assistant quarterbacks coach next to Jeff Levy. Um, on defense, the strength of this team um, actually really is the secondary. Uh, they had a lot of veterans coming in, and even with the loss of Brandon Moore, who was probably an NFL prospect, lost him to a broken leg um, in the in the FAMU game on a on a real freak, freak accident, basically, on a play, um, on a play that didn't count. Um, UCF is still loaded on the back end. Um, Navelle Clark is definitely going to be an NFL player at some point, and Richie Grant is definitely the leader of the defense um, uh, at, at the safety position. So, um, you know, it, we've talked about how, you know, well, UCF's defense had some struggles um, – Last year, certainly they did, especially in first halves. They're still middle of the pack in the uh, in in the in FBS right now, at 46th in pass defense. Um, and in terms of uh, total yards given up, though, you know it's, it's sort of you know again middle to the back of the pack at 49th. Um, and a lot of that had to do with what Pitt did last week. But um, you know, overall, I think that um, I think that what what they've been able to do on defense in the second year under Randy Shannon is that now, but all the players understand the scheme last year, they were still learning it. Um, but now all the players know the scheme, they understand it. And the question is, you know, are they going to be healthy enough to get through the season? Obviously with a few key losses, but, um, but the defense uh, from our end, at least from what we've observed is a much improved unit this year compared to last. 
So this week the Huskies are, uh, you know, depending on your source, 47-point-ish point underdogs uh, going into this I'm seeing game. 43 and a half. It's moved down. So some, some money's coming in on UConn, Amon. <laughs> well, lots of points, yeah. Uh, that, that was a heck of a lot. It still is obviously quite a bit. Um, UConn's coming off of a uh, not covering against Indiana, against a 28-point spread. Um, obviously we both we both pretty have a pretty good feel on on how the real scoreboard's going to shake out but how do you feel about this game uh against the spread well i mean that's 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 why vegas does this to us right they're trying to get even money on both sides um uh i think that what vegas knows right now is that this is a forgive my forgive my french here but a pissed off ucf team and they certainly were coming off of that loss to Pitt. They, um, you know, uh, to a man, every player said that they were really, they were angry about how they lost that game. That, you know, they fell down. Something just didn't feel right coming out of that game. They fell down pretty quickly, 21 nothing, And then they scored 31 points in 13 minutes and 30 seconds. And that's at Pitt. Uh, and then couldn't hang on and lost by one point on a trick play on a fourth down. Uh, with one minute to go. And now that UCF starting the conference here, the, the players and the coaches both know that even at three and one, their odds for, you know, it, for being the group of five representative in the New Year's Six Bowls, which is UCF's goal every year now, um, you know, the odds are lower now because you have one loss in Boise State and a, and a few other teams are undefeated. Um, but you have to be, but the rules are you have to be the highest ranked conference champion in, in, at the end of the season. And it doesn't matter really what anybody, Boise or anybody else does. That means you still got to win the conference and UCF wants to lay waste to the conference heading into that because they know that if they lose a second game, they probably won't be able to, they probably won't be able to get in. There might be one there. It's not likely that a, you'll get everyone else who will be in the group of five in a conference championship with two losses. So they know they have to turn it up at this point. And it starts with, and it starts with UConn um, this week. The Knights want to send a message to the rest of the league um, and, uh, and, and, and put some serious points on the board in this conference game, because they're not just trying to send a message to the American. They're trying to send a message to the country that, you know, it's, we're still here. So um, so we'll have to see, you know, and given how explosive the offense has been in the first, uh, in the first four games and certainly for at least one quarter of that fourth game, certainly, um, there's little reason to doubt that, uh, that they're going to put a big crooked number up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both of those reasons, the, the tough loss last week, and then, uh, just the mere fact that in college kind of more so than the NFL in college, you really want that just massive uh, margin of victory because you'll get to throw out stats like, you know, average margin of victory in conference play or something like that and uh, be able to look better. So a lot of reasons to be uh, scared of a large point total in this one, not the least of which being that USF has scored 56 and 49 in uh, these last two meetings. Do you ever look back at uh, the history, the, the vaunted history of this uh, historic college football rivalry? <laughs> Long and, live the conflict. I know, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Oh, don't worry, we'll get there. Um, but do you ever look back and just say, like, how, you know, 
we lost to UConn twice. <laughs> I, uh, you know, <laughs> in the AAC era. I know. As someone who's covered UCF for 20 years, going back to when they were a Division One independent, like barely on the outskirts of, you know, then Division One A and now FBS. Uh, and at a time when UConn was still in then Division One Double A, um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't scratch my head at the 2015 game. That was the 40 to 13 route in a season where basically UCF quit three games into the year. George O'Leary got fired or resigned, depending upon how much whoever you talk to likes him. Um, it was 40 to 13 that year. Uh, Danny Barrett at the time was the, uh, was the uh, interim head coach. And UCF basically quit three games into the year. And uh, that's the only one that's really not a head scratcher. The only one that's a real head scratcher to me is in 2014, which was 37-29 up in, up in uh, East Hartford. And um, it, was a it was a game that just had all the makings of a trap, I remember, for UCF. Um, and it was, and it ended up being the loss that actually cost UCF the outright conference title because it, that year it was a three-way tie. Remember that? Yes. Um, and UCF actually won their share of the title in the final game of the regular season at ECU on that Hail Mary from Justin Holman to Rashad Perriman, um, on the last, uh, on the last play of the game. And, uh, Looking back on it, it's a, it's a game that UCF should not have lost, but the rest of them have been, for the most part, not very competitive. 2013, UCF put 62 up. Uh, 2016 was tight, but Scott Frost and company pulled it out, and then, they, then UCF has scored 49 and 56 on UConn the last two years. So um, it's, you know, but those, those two losses, you know, one of them was an embarrassing blowout loss at home, and the other one was a, was a painful close loss on the road that ended up having some late season implications. So is the, is the conflict a real rivalry? Well, it's, it's been, a, it's been an eventful one, especially <laughs> for the times when UConn's won it. <laughs> right. No, for sure. I mean, I think when we look back on the, the American athletic conference chapter of, of at least UConn's history, two, two wins against a really solid UCF program. And to talk about the conflict, you know, Bob Diaco obviously got made fun of, quite a bit uh in that 20 2015 offseason for for starting the rivalry and then showed up in orlando uh grabbed that win uh celebrated on the field uh but then the next year scott frost didn't seem very interested uh in in grabbing that trophy any any word on if someone from ucf grabbed that important artifact of college football history and because because I actually called and I asked UConn, I said, whatever happened to that trophy? The last and the last person seen handling it was a student equipment manager for UConn. Um, UCF left it sitting on the end of the UCF bench. <laughs> they just left it and went in the locker room and just left it there. Yeah, that's um, my favorite thing. And and one and and it looked like one of UConn's student managers, you know, drove up in one of those John Deere Gator things, you know. Mm -hmm. and uh and drove by and picked it up put it on the back of the gator drove off the field and it was never seen again i don't know it shall remain one of college football's great mysteries it almost sounds like something like you would have heard back in you know from from a game 
you know, that was played back in like the thirties yeah. or forties or something yeah, like, like yeah, years this ago team beat that. Yeah. This team beat that team. They won the trophy, but then they lost it and who knows where it is. And yeah. So they had to go make a new one. And yeah, but, <laughs> but it's, uh, I don't know. It's just all it, when you, th- when you think about it, like when you sit back and you look and you're like, and, and you really, you really just sit back and think about it. It's all hilarious. It's I all agree. So exactly. funny. <laughs> It's the other, part of the stupid, funny stuff that college football is all about. <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, look, there, Bob Diaco was um, a very interesting person, uh, a very flawed football coach. But uh, there are a couple of pieces of this that, that did work. Where One is that this game did get disproportionate attention uh, yes. with, with respect to the quality of the matchup that it was. That's for sure. Uh, and if he wasn't such a bumbling uh, actual, you know, uh, manager of a program, and let's say he got UConn to a half decent level, it could be an interesting an interesting thing. But uh, you know, UCF uh, surely held up its side of the bargain on on that. But um, you know, it it was a good idea. It, well, it it was an idea that worked in terms of getting attention. Uh, and then I think the part where he failed on the execution was with the part where UConn just wasn't a very good football team. Otherwise it could have kept just being kind of a thing. It, it really did captivate a nation. You had lots of the nation. You had lots of national uh, college football writers talking about it. And um, yeah, it's got a, it's got an interesting legacy, I think uh, for when it's all said and done, but, uh, but ultimately ends up being a microcosm for the Bob Diaco era at UConn, which uh, of course, as we all know, ended really poorly. Yeah. I, I mean, you can imagine, okay, I don't know if you're a believer in, in the theory of, you know, the multiverse, but somewhere in the multiverse, <laughs> if such a thing exists, there's a, there's a place where, you know, Bob Yako is a, it, it, you know, is a success, had success at UConn, right? And then the conflict actually turned into a rivalry um, right. of some decent proportion. And, um, you know, maybe that exists somewhere, but we don't live in that part of the multiverse. Unfortunately, yeah. We'll switch gears a little bit. Uh, many UConn fans are uh, turning the page on football season and ready to talk basketball. We just got schedules out and stuff like that. So to um, just kind of close out our conversation today, uh, want to give me a quick outlook for UCF men's and women's basketball this upcoming season. All right. So uh, men's basketball, it's it, – that we were joking the other day that, you know, for their, for their little uniform patch, they should put one of those hi, my name is stickers up there because there's basically one or maybe two recognizable names coming back off that team that, that came within an eyelash of beating Duke in the round of 32. Um, basically everybody's gone. <laughs> uh, they all graduated a few transfers, uh, nothing because of any, uh, any turmoil within the program. It's just, that's how it worked out. Uh, but Johnny Dawkins is back. There are uh, a number of young players and transfers that are coming back. It's uh, like, we don't even really know what we're going to get. There are some interesting, some interesting guys that, you know, Colin Smith is, is back. Um, uh, UCF has another big guy in Uada Locke who uh, transferred over from TCU um, and a few other interesting names too, that might be familiar to people who follow college basketball closely who claim over as grad transfers or whatnot. But uh, a very unknown quantity on the men's side. On the women's side, same thing, actually, except for one thing, UCF's best players back at KK Wright. UCF graduated seven seniors last year off the women's team that uh, faced UConn in the uh, American Championship. 
um, and uh, and ruffled the feathers of one coach Oriyama uh, with how they played down the stretch in that game. But um, uh, but again, coach uh, coach Katie Abrahamson Henderson, coach Abe as we call her, is back uh, and is trying to rebuild the program once again. This time with all of her own recruits. But KK is back, and uh, and for my money, and, and I know this is going to get, this is going to ruffle the feathers of of UConn fans out there. But if you if you had an award for who the most valuable player was in the American last year, it's KK Wright of UCF because uh, and and this is not to, uh, and this is not to. Uh, disparage anything that that UConn has done it's just that UConn's a machine you know if you take out one if you take out their best player like take out Katie Lou Samuelson there's somebody else going to fill those points and rebounds right I mean it's uh there but if you took KK right off of UCF's team they maybe win five games so to me she's the most valuable player to her team in the American um and uh and is heading into her senior year um it should be uh, – it's going to be definitely a rebuilding year for both UCF squads. So we'll see how it works out. Um, it's it's – you never, you never predict the future, but it's going to be I, – I think it's going to be very hard for UCF to come close to repeating what they did with both basketball programs last year. But you never know. So, okay, so they UConn announced the fall concert artist, and um, – I am extremely old. I went to college like over 10 years ago and I was pretty surprised that I knew who it was because I've been used to seeing them name the artist and being like, Oh man, I, I do not even know who that is. And, and so my reaction was like, I was listening to T-Pain in college. Is, has he done anything else since that rough time frame? I, I don't think so, but he has, he is still relevant. Um, you know, people my age, I graduated college a lot more recently than I'm on. Um, wow. I don't, you know, it's just, I just wanted to get that out there, but, um, and Dan is still in college and we, I think it's kind of interesting that all three of us like knew who he was and like knew that his songs and we're all like, Oh, that's, you know, a pretty good get for them. So they had some very questionable names in the past and combining, uh, with the fall concert, made a lot of sense. I think they were able to kind of pull together some, some extra budget and make it happen. But I was just looking like, obviously, you know, people that grad, like, you know, went to high school six, seven, eight, ten 10 years ago, kind of know, I feel like a lot of T-Pain songs, but he's still pretty relevant. I was just looking, he has 2 million followers on Instagram. He has a million followers on Twitter. Oh wow! Um, so no he's, more. yeah, I mean, so I feel like he's still relatively relevant. Um, just a lot of just bangers. So it should be a pretty interesting spring concert, but I think it's kind of cool. Like it, it appeals to a bunch of different groups. Um, like I told my girlfriend that T-Pain was performing at first night and she's like, what do we need to do? Like, do we need to camp out? We like, how soon do we need to get there? Like just say the words. So uh, I think it'll be pretty interesting. It's definitely going to bring in a few more people than norm than would normally go. Cause I know first night in the past hasn't always been super well attended. Yeah. Um, but you know, other than the, following a national championship or a, you know, a new coach like Carly. So, uh, Hey, whatever it takes to bring people in the door. And I think this is a, a really exciting idea. I'm, I'm excited to see T-Pain. I'll be there. I'll tell you that. All right. Well, Hey, good. Yeah. Good move by UConn. And of course, I mean, I think, I think the point you're hitting at is it's kind of like a, a multi-generational, uh, hit maker is that's, that's who T-Pain was. And, uh, 
crossed across a lot of divides. I mean, buy you a drink. Classic. Who among us? Who among us has not? Right. T Pain's uh, the glue that's gonna bring the generations of UConn fans ranging from the slightly older women's basketball crowd to the, you know, younger, youthful men's crowd together. He's gonna bring everyone together, I think. Conley, do you know who T Pain is? Yeah, believe it or not, me as a college student still, uh, I know who T Pain is. I I think he was a little before my time, not to date both of you guys. But like that was that was like middle school. So like everyone my age knows who T Pain is. Like he's just one of those like artists that like everyone knows, even if you don't really know him, like you know T Pain. I'm pretty sure T Pain had a free concert in Stamford like (laughs) four months ago. (laughs) Was he at a live of live at five? That thing? Uh hang on, I'm looking it up. Stay tuned. A yeah, live at, at five. A live at five. Yeah, yep. live at five used to have like the Backstreet Boys and a lot of uh, even older musical acts. So that's surprise. I'm surprised to hear T Pain was at that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It seems like he's uh, you know a pretty decent performer and should be a fun time. I'm excited. Yeah, I, no, I agree. Good choice and uh, good way to get people in the door. I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, I will say again, I'm surprised Connolly has heard of it, but. Uh, you know. All right, I'm I'm a senior now. I feel like we can't make the the jokes about me being a child can't land as well as they used to. I just, no, they I, still do. They still hit. I, I, <laughs> I actually don't mean child. I just mean it as like I thought his relevant musical time period was ten plus years ago, and you know, like again, what's what's like something newer that that he's done. Yeah, he apparently came out with an album in 2019, which I'm going to be honest, was a total shock to me. But from like 2000, 2002 to like 2005, he was just on fire. Well, so um, that, yeah, that's ancient history. That's even... Yeah, that's even even later, 2007. But yeah, no, that's a long time ago. You're right. And uh, it, it's definitely interesting, but should be should be fun to see him live. That's going to do it for us this week. Uh, thank you all for listening. Do we want to talk about T-Pain? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about T-Pain. Um, <laughs> I, like, really want to talk about T-Pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's. We should have asked Diaco about it. We should have emailed the Louisiana Tech Athletic Department. We should go. We should go to Louisiana Tech. <laughs> it's the only way. <laughs> that should be uh, part three of the conflicted documentary. It's just tracking Bob Diaco. Stalking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. him. Bob, Bob. Bob, it's all about the conflict. I wonder when the last time he Bob tweeted. Anyway, um, I'm on it. Uh, A while because I have his tweet notifications on. (laughs) (laughs) Congrats. Wait, I think Bob Diaco deleted his Twitter account, guys. (gasps) No. Yeah. Oh my God. He was probably getting too much uh, hate. Yeah, yeah, especially during conflict week. <laughs> oh, that's probably why he probably deleted it. For- oh my god, imagine that. Uh, uh, is there a way you can? I, I'll, all right, carry on. I'll do some research in the background yeah, here. Is there a, is there a wayback machine for Twitter? <laughs> probably. 
I don't think there is, but we there there has to be a way to see when was the last time Bob Diaco tweeted. Oh, easily. Yeah. Okay. You record me and Madigan are okay. investigative. All right. Let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. Let it rain. Let me talk to him. Come on. Shout it out to me.